Hello. Welcome to the Venture Brothers Podcast. Well, we'll just credit the awkwardness of my intro to the cinema verite stylings that I'm using in today's episode. <laughs> um, so we're back. Thank you. This is the uh, Venture Brothers Podcast of Graphic Policy Radio. Um, every week, uh, we are going to talk about each episode of the Gra- of the Venture Brothers cartoon from Adult Swim. And this week, we are doing two episodes because I was on vacation and because Steve and was I was sick. So I, I'm referring to this as our science fiction double feature, um, even though there actually aren't any Rocky Horror references. But I put money down that by the time this season is done, like there will be Rocky Horror uh, in this particular season. I, season, I mean. But anyway. So, um, yeah, we'll be talking about episode five and six, which were amazing episodes. And joining me, as always, is Stephen Adwell. Hi, how's it going? Great. Um, Stephen is professor of U.S. history, who shares my love of all things Venture Brothers and things super geeky. Um, I'm myself, I'm co-host of Graphic Policy Radio's regular comics podcasts, and uh, I write about comics. And I studied a lot of Warhol in college, which is incredibly convenient for episode six. So I think our listeners have come to the right place. But let's start by talking about issue five first. Um, Stephen, do you want to set us up on issue five, uh, episode five, I mean? Sure. Uh, episode five, Tanks for Nothing, uh, starts off uh, with, uh, you know, in this episode, the monarch and Dr. Mrs. the monarch's marital trouble taking a very strange turn. Uh, after initial conflict over uh, the monarch's frustration with guild rules, and Dr. Mrs. the Monarch's frustrations with her stay-at-home husband's lack of ambition and energy, the two run into each other uh, again at the NYPD impound yard when Dr. Mrs. investigates the Blue Morpho's murder of Horangutan and deals with his violently grieving, grieving widow, Battleaxe. Who is amazing. Dr. Mrs. the Monarch hunts down the Blue Morpho, only to be foiled when the Monarch accidentally activates the, Morpho's car, the Morpho car's flying mode after a complicated chase in which Dr. Mrs. comes to suspect that Rusty Venture is Blue Morpho yet again, and not the only one to come to this erroneous conclusion, by the way, um, she returns home to find that the house's renovations have greatly improved, which patches up the ongoing conflict between the couple. However, Dr. Mrs. now has a new enemy of the Blue Morpho. Meanwhile, over at Ventec Tower, Rusty and the pirate captain deal with the fallout from a viral video of Billy Quizboy High on Godcast. Brock wakes up from his fling at Warianus with something of a hangover and ongoing kink shame issues that put him a bit off his game when dealing with Dr. Mrs. and Rusty Venture's new arc, uh, arch think tank, who also happens to be Dr. Nadaba, Dean's professor of philosophy. However, it turns out think tank primarily wants to play chess, while Rusty's more of a Parcheesi man. During the insane fight-slash-car chase that follows, Brock and Moriana work out their hookup slash relationship issues with an unauthorized team up. Rusty has to clean the monarch shit out of his pool, and Rusty's new arch and battle axe kill each other in the giant pit in his lobby. So what do you think of this? <laughs> oh my god, what a collapse of a shitstorm. Um it definitely felt like a lot of pieces were beginning to come together and pay off. I had, it had a lot of laughs, a lot of great moments. And uh I think yeah. We have a clear sense of where things are going at this point for the season. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, in, in some ways, like, some stuff is, is uh, more expected. Other stuff can sort of wrong foot you. I mean, you know, 
I, we'd seen by this point that, you know, stuff was going on between the monarch and, and Dr. And Mrs. The Monarch, but I didn't sort of expect this particular kind of uh, conflict. It's a little bit more sort of subtle and, and weird and identity switching. Um, uh, I also love the ongoing uh, plot thread of all of Rusty's new arches dying in that giant pit in his lobby. Yes. That's such a great metaphor, I think, for like just the sinkhole that dealing with Rusty is in most people's lives. I, I, I think it's yeah. like a metaphor. Oh, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about some of the references. Um, they're not as uh, extensive this episode as, uh, oh, man, all of the stuff that we're going to be talking about in episode six. <laughs> um, so you want to start off with uh, Warriana's outfit. Yeah, so this is subtle. Um, when I saw Warriana acting as a newscaster, I thought for a moment, like, wait, didn't Diana Prince, which is Wonder Woman's alter ego, who she's based on anyway, uh, wasn't she a newscaster at some time during the 70s? And I actually can't find any indication of that. Um, she's had many different jobs, but I think one of the reasons why I thought that is that her outfit in that scene where she's on television as a newscaster, that is totally, that white outfit is like an outfit that Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, wears in her casual wear in the 70s. Like, they just nailed it. Uh, and, of course, Spider, sorry, Superman himself was a TV broadcast news guy briefly when Jack Kirby was writing him again in the, seven, in the early 70s. So it's a bit of a Silver Age comics throwback, having her be that journalist, TV journalist. Yeah, didn't didn't Wonder Woman actually have like a white jumpsuit kind of mm-hmm. costume in the 70s where briefly she was a, a depowered Depowered spy. Yeah, great clothes, right. stupid premise, cool art, yeah. Yes, but she also had like white suit that was like a suit for when she was yeah. being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, arch- uh, archaeologist, whatever thing. Okay, mm. so that was a thing. Yeah. Um, uh, she also so, keeps referring to, to Brock Sampson as Heracles, which I think is, is, is cool, because she just does it, and she doesn't even ask. Like, there's no question about who she's talking with about. It's obviously Brock. And I like that she's referring to him by, like, the, uh, oh, now I'm dyslexic. Is Heracles Greek and Heracles is Roman or the other way around? Uh, Heracles is usually, I think, the Greek pronunciation. Okay, so then there's that. And that's just sort of the way it is, and she's just consistent about that. Yeah, and, you know, there's also there's a, a, a mythological connotation, too, because one of Heracles, um, one of his trials was to get the um, girdle of strength from the Queen of the Amazons, who he married at one point. Yes. Definitely in there. Um, And Um, she definitely makes references. She makes mythological references in her dialogue all the time, but she basically spells it all out, so I don't really know if we need to. Another sort of ongoing theme that they've they've been running with this season is that uh, Dr. Mrs. the Monarch's sort of Nazi fetish uniform turns people on inappropriately. Uh, Although, I, I mean, and generally speaking, people have those sorts of reactions to what he's wearing anyway, but I do think that the Nazi aspect makes it, like, a more awkward joke and therefore funny. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, you know, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Night Quarter and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the the one sort of, like, dud to me this episode was Billy Quiz Boy's viral video which is just sort of like a slightly dated, I mean, well, not even slightly, a pretty dated reference to the 
uh, David Hasselhoff viral video where, you know, the whole point was that he was being kind of shamed for being a kind of sloppy alcoholic. Kind of a weird yeah. choice. Well, I feel like they were making fun. They weren't making, well, the, the um, Dr. Gen- Colonel Gentleman and, and all them were making fun of Billy, and that was really unfair since they were, it was not his fault he got drugged at all. But I thought the yeah. TV show was making fun of Action Man and Colonel Gentleman for being dicks. Like, the joke wasn't at Billy's expense. The joke was, like, these people are assholes. Yeah, and, and certainly it's also, you know, pointing out this sort of Pete White's ongoing, uh, what was it that uh, that uh, Vatred called him once a star fucker? That, mm-hmm. like, he's got this lust for fame that often uh, works out at Billy's expense. I mean, you know, that's why Billy has a robot hand. Um, yeah. An eye patch, after all. Um, but, you know, I think part of the problem is just that viral videos are such an ephemeral trend that any kind of, like, joke reference to them, it's really hard to make those things land because, you know, who it, remembers... It so fast. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, you want to talk the about Blue the Blue Morpho, Morpho cave. cave? Yeah, the Blue Morpho Cave is the 1966 Bat Cave from the TV show, complete with a crime computer whose computing power is more like a speak-and-spell rather than a current Apple laptop which, of course, is why they don't use it. <laughs> but I understand the temptation that you'd want to. Um, it's got all these oddball gadgets, like a Blue Morpho back scratcher hand, and just, like, how Batman had, like, shark repellents and everything else that you could possibly imagine in his old utility belt. But what I love is there's even a phone line that goes directly to the mayor of Newark's office, which is, you know, like, there used to be a phone that would go straight to the Commissioner Gordon's office in the old show. Um and, of course, there's nobody in the mayor of New York's office, so the, the, the janitorial staff picks up the phone. And also nobody yeah, used that phone that whole time. I love, how, I love how confused that guy was. That was a great cutaway. Yeah, they, they do a really nice thing with the Blue Morpho, which is a lot of it is like taking the stuff of nostalgia and pointing out some of the kind of ridiculous things about it, right? That, like, mm-hmm. of course, computers that looked really hip and cool in the 70s have become hopelessly outdated. And, you know, there was always the weirdness of, like, the 60s Batman being a vigilante who nonetheless, like, has a a hotline to the mayor of of Newark or the mayor of Gotham, which has kind of always struck me as, like, a weird um, kind of legal criminal justice thing. Um, But at the same time, there's, like, something still cool about it. Um, Yeah. I was thinking especially that, like, weird back-scratch-your-hand thing is absolutely like a ridiculous Batman gadget from the 60s, except that when they use it in the uh, NYPD impound yard, it's actually really useful. So I kind of like that they're they're sort of showing both sides of that. Hmm. Um, Battle Axe's Irish pub, you were pointing out that she's serving Brick Frog, which oh, is a pair yeah. of... Yeah. So, um, so Brick Frog and uh, Jägermeister and a character who I don't think we've ever gotten like a specific name. Uh, he, he's um, a parody of Apache Chief from the Super Friends show. Yeah, uh, yeah. His like special word is Enochchuk. Enochchuk. So yeah. I don't know whether that's his name or or what. 
Um, and uh, Jägermeister, who is a man with the head of a stag, like the Jägermeister logo. So mm-hmm. what I love about Brick Frog is, first of all, he's just kind of ridiculous. He's a guy in a frog suit who chucks bricks at people. Uh, which is hilarious. Um, and, you know, he's he's really uh, a great parody and callback to sort of classic Spider-Man and occasionally Daredevil villains like the Frogman and Leapfrog, who are always like, even within Marvel Comics continuity, they were the, the like, joke Z-list villains that, like, yeah. the heroes were vaguely embarrassed to like fight. Like Pot Pete. Exactly. Sorry, the trapster, as he was preferred to be called. Yeah, and in fact, uh, Frogman and Leapfrog actually, and Spot Pete, uh, at one point, like, tried to create, like, a D-list superhero team because they were, like, tired of getting their asses kicked on a regular basis. Um, and I think, in fact, Frogman and Leapfrog fought each other over, like, who was the superior frog-based uh, costumed hero. Uh, but also that Brickfrog is a... Um, is a, a term uh, from from bricklaying. Uh, it's the little indentation in a brick. Um, hmm. So it's kind of it's a it's a pun that works on a whole bunch of levels. Um, so that's cool. Yeah. And I actually just wanted to also just sort of point out the whole like British pub in New York City as a reference in and of itself. Like I guess they kind of take for granted that people know, but like New York City is just full of these pub in a boxes, basically. Um, some of them are real. Some of them, like, you know, are kind of, like, owned by conglomerates and, like, you, like, literally get your bar signage out of a box. And lots of them hire Irish immigrant staff as bartenders. This is especially true back in the 90s when the economy in Ireland was crummy, so a lot of folks were working here. Um, but, like, when I first came to New York, like, there was just an endless number of, like, bartenders from Ireland running Irish bars. Yeah. And you said that this looks like health coaching to you. Oh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, for a while ago, I thought it might have been well, from the Lower East Side, because it actually reminds me of one particular building I've seen there. But, like, looking at the block and the corner it's on in its relation to the, the, the street, it's, it's Hell's Kitchen. Hmm. Which is, you know, that is, like, prime, an absolute prime magnet neighborhood for, for Yeah. So prime neighborhood for, for Irish pubs would be Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Um, so the Wide Whale, um, this, this was sort of a, something we'll talk about more in the theme section. But uh, the Wide Whale outsourcing arching through the guild's uh, fiends and family plan uh, is part of this sort of ongoing joke about the guild acting like a cell phone company that has a friends mm-hmm. and family plan. Uh, yeah. Which I thought was great because, you know, everyone hates cell phone companies. They're just by nature obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly the kind of thing that this sort of new corporatized guild would do and kind of points to that whole ongoing sort of tension about um, – you know, arching for arch's sake. Uh, the other thing that I, I loved in this episode, the orangutan. Uh, first of all, great pun, top notch. Uh, but it also really looked like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles turtle van. Did you hmm. ever have one of those? Uh, of my thing? brother did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little. I'm like, a little older. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it does look like it. It looks yeah, like it. Yeah, but just sort of imagined as like a really depressing RV. Yeah. by a huge number, but just like this, this couple who are, you know, depressed alcoholics and a bartender. So, so there's, you know, horrible codependency kind of under the surface there. And smells. Yeah. And wife abuse and, and, and casual spousal abuse and all kinds of things. 
Um, yeah. yeah. So you want to talk uh, about the think tank? Yes, think tank. Oh my God! The second I saw him, I was just ecstatic. Uh, I we, when I saw his head, I said oh, he's going to be a Modoc, and then lo and behold, he was in fact a Modoc. For those who don't know, Modoc is a classic, classic Marvel supervillain. Uh, Modoc is M O D O K, which stands for metal or mobile or mechanized. I prefer mental mental organism designed only for killing. Um, and he's like a super science that's like a giant floating face with tiny little limbs, like in a metal encasement, basically, like, which is the tank that Think Tank puts his body into. They nailed it on that design. They even have this crazy purple color scheme. And Modoc has been doing <laughs> more and more interesting things in Marvel Comics. Like Alec, um, Alec Cott, is like the writer, has been super interested in doing cool things with Modoc. So he's been doing weird things in Marvel lately. If you've seen more of them, that might be why. Also, one of the names he considered for my cat was, rather than mechanical organism designed only for killing, was mushy organism designed only for cuteness. But we named him after Rocket Impossible from the Venture Brothers instead. But anyway, so yeah, he's a Modoc crossed with Cornell West. And that's just disturbing. <laughs> like, where do you get that from? I love it. Um, you know, obviously he's a professor of philosophy who's like way into talking about Nietzsche. And Chess, he displays like the, the Sherlock Holmes deductive reasoning method in a very flamboyant scene. He's, you know... He is the intelligent supervillain. I mean, he does all the stereotypical signifiers of like what an intelligent supervillain is supposed to be like, even as a certain nobility. Like He doesn't want Dean to get hurt. So he, tr- he thinks of these justifications for why Dean shouldn't be home when the arching begins. Um, yeah. And I love he, and he, when he's listing his credentials, he mentions Certificate from Evelyn Wood, which is a speed, which is a speed reading academy, which, of course, explains why he was able to read Dean's um, report so quickly and know it was shitty. <laughs> or I'm not sure whether it was actually supposed to be shitty or whether he was making that up as like a Part reason of cover. to get Dean out of the the house, basically. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Yeah, um, I, I, but, I, and I love him challenging that. Doc Venture to chess because, and Doc saying he plays Parcheesi because I Parcheesi is literally an entirely luck game. Like checkers is dumb man's chess, you know. Like checkers has involves skill and like logic and it takes brains. He didn't say, Doc didn't call himself a checkers man. Doc called himself a Parcheesi man. Parcheesi is a 100% luck board game. I think that kind yeah. of says it all. Uh, yeah, I absolutely loved him. I mean, first of all, his speech that he gives to the, uh, to the, to the students, like, first of all, Nietzsche is, like, both the classic supervillain philosopher mm-hmm. and the, like, classic douchebag freshman, like, teenage libertarian <laughs> yeah. as well because it's all about how I'm so much more special than everyone else but also he had that great quote about like you know well we're done for the day you know go back to your endless tweeting and casual date rapery <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just like such a curdled awful view of of, uh, of students which you know of course he's a professor that's, that's what it does to you um, but I also love that his whole theme was that like the guild wasn't giving good service that he'd always been paired up against like muscle jocks and he wanted a real intellectual challenge. I thought that there was something, you know, really kind of uh, sweet and almost poignant about, you know, he just wants a battle of wits and he can't get one. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, 
he can't flag down a cab at Columbus Circle because the the, the cab drivers are racist against black men. Yeah. Um, although, you know, it is interesting that, like, when he actually starts fighting Brock Sanson, he gets really into it, the whole, like, cat and mouse thing that they have going on. Yeah, yeah. I thought maybe when he had that shield, I was like, is this a reference to Doom? But then I thought maybe I was thinking too hard. Well, but also, I, I mean, Modoc does have, like, psychic energy powers, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely going to be doing a, a column about Modoc in the future because, well, I've already written a little bit about him, but, like, in Marvel Comics, you know, the, the student, you know, student radicalism in the 60s is all Modoc's fault. He's just, like, he's... <laughs> he has these bizarre plans that all involve taking advantage of, of American social ills um, in order to, like, somehow bootstrap that to, like, super science. It's, it's kind of crazy. Which is, like, that's a college professor. That's an evil college professor-like thing. I get it. That's awesome. Yeah. Although Modoc um, has never so actually been an evil college professor in the comics that I'm aware of. I would love to see Modoc as a college professor. I mean, he's, you know... He's a giant Olmuck head baby. He would be amazing. <laughs> um, so you want to talk about the impound yard? Oh, just that the impound yard where they go to pick up the NYPD, their car? That is the real NYPD impound yard at Brooklyn Navy Yards. <laughs> I don't I don't I, I'm, I'm sort of wondering, like, did, did, um, did Jackson um, and... Um, Somebody, and, uh, Jensen adopted, have they been been pounded? Well, someone they know has, certainly. So, <laughs> like, I think, I think I like, my husband said, had, like, a panic attack just looking at this. He's like, oh, God, it's the real, it's the real impound lot. Because he has cars. you know, they, they crank dart one of the, the, the cop one time, and then they, you know, battle axe the other time. And it's like, you know, clearly someone here has had a negative <laughs> experience in the Brooklyn impound yard. You know, and decided well, to take it out in cinematic fashion. Yeah, exactly. Well, also, th- she, Battle Axe thing about Parkies on patrol, but I couldn't see if she was saying Parkies on patrol or Porkies on patrol. Porkies meaning cops, right? Or if it was Parkies, like people who guard a park. I was unclear about that. Yeah, and she did. She does say, like, straight up, like, you know, I fucking hate coppers. Which is, you know, a supervillain kind of thing to say, so. Yeah, but, you know, okay, also moving. that kind of Irish uh, working class kind of attitude thing, too. Well, I guess you're, yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the themes now. Okay. Um, so uh, one thing definitely is failure. That is, you know, the thesis of the show. And there's, like, to me, the big thing here was the monarch marriage and, like, the way that it's breaking down. And I was actually kind of a little bit wrong-footed about how I thought this was going to play out. Um, Because it starts out with them very much on rocky ground, both over the guild and their, like, their work-life balance. And especially, like, the way that um, the monarch's always in the bathrobe and uh, Dr. Mrs. the monarch is always has that uh, little roller case that read to me very much like a couple where, you know, the, the wife is a successful professional and the husband is laid off and is not really taking care of himself. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I yeah. thought that was going to be the reason that they have uh, that they have conflict, but the way that it gets sublimated in the Blue Morpho was kind of really interesting. Um, you know, because it the the thing with the the hallway, you know, where she comes back and that like makes her feel better about their relationship. That did kind of read like almost a, a Homer and Marge thing, you know, like a reset at the end of the episode. Yeah, except I think, that I think it worked that way. Except that there's this whole ongoing thing about, you know, you're not the enemy, but I know who my enemy is. And it's like they're they're sort of sidestepping the kind of mundane reason for breaking up with a potentially hugely explosive super villainous reason for breaking up. Yeah. I, 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 I'm really worried about them. They're like not going to come out of this okay. And the yeah. show has invested a lot into them as a couple that works. So oh, I think yeah, they're actually the really smart and like this is a kind of stakes that I think the show's needed to work because I've been concerned in the past that it's been scared to hurt its darlings, you know, and um, I think that it might be willing to do that now. Yeah, that's it's funny that you that you mention that because one of the things that I've been reading, you know, in recaps and, and reviews of the show, is that some people were saying that they felt like the stakes were too low this season. What? And for me, the stakes have been huge because it's like it's the monarch marriage. I care deeply about whether the, the monarch. Yes, you know, exactly. You know, I care more about that than I do about you know. You know, whatever uh, you know, the Guild of Calamitous Intent and OSI are are screwing around with. Agreed. Um, so, speaking of characters who are going through some stuff, what do you, you want to talk about? Twenty one. Just yeah, real briefly. Twenty one is is traumatized because he killed a man. Like, I guess he had never killed anybody in any of the. In, in, I mean, certainly they weren't trying to kill people, but sometimes people would get killed inadvertently. But this definitely had a real impact on him. And, you know, both there's been conversations in this episode and in the next with respect to Brock about, like, people dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder because of violence that they committed, actually. Yeah, and that's definitely something they've been playing with uh, for a long, long time. I'm remembering, I don't remember which episode this was uh, particularly, but um, the one where uh, uh, Dr. Orpheus holds a seance and... Brock has this kind of, you know, uh, dream journey uh, where he's riding on a, mm-hmm. a dolphin. Yes. Um, and, you know, we, we see that sort of continuing in, in episode six as well. Um, and also, you know, I mean, talk about metaphors, the giant hole in the floor. Yeah. So you want to talk about that as a, as a metaphor? Yeah, I know. I think we hinted that already. It's, Yeah. We got that covered. Super business. Yeah. So, you know, to me, this was like the the meat of the episode because, you know, as we'll talk about in a bit, it's not a whole lot going on with super science, but there's a lot going on with sort of the business of being a superhero. Uh, One thing that I love is that, like, how much the monarch is getting into being this kind of vigilante good guy, bad guy thing. Um, And in this case, it's because he loves flying cars and being a casual dick to Rusty Venture by, like, I love that his, his, like, the way that he thinks about screwing with Dr. Venture is not, you know, stealing something that belongs to him or trying to kill him. It's taking a shit in his pool, which is just incredibly petty. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm enjoying how much fun he's having with this, frankly. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, the, it's he's also super self-destructive. Like, he's on a self-destructive run right now because of what he's doing with his life on multiple levels. And um, so it's almost like he's having a manic episode, I think, might be the way to characterize this. I think that's a really good analogy, um, which, you know, that's kind of a shame because it seems like it's also, like, he's finding this sort of vigilante stuff to be really fulfilling. Yeah. And the problem is he's not communicating with his wife. Like, that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you, uh, yeah, the plan about do- whacking Dr. Venture's arches, you want to talk about this? Yeah. Um, th- th- everybody who touches Doc is dying. All these villains, he is like a black – I mean, I guess it really is just a parallel of the, the, what we were talking about with the black – the giant hole in the floor – yeah, um, um, and yeah. Jeff, you know the the only one who seems to be immune to that at the moment is the is Wide Whale, and that's I think mm-hmm. in part because he's outsourcing. That's a good point. Um, and you know there we have <clears throat> one thing that I'm sort of surprised that they haven't really touched on at all this season is the fact that like we don't know whether he knows that that the monarch killed his brother. I think that's going to be addressed. I think they're they're holding that. Yeah, it's just interesting how long they're holding it, given that this is a pretty short season. How many um, episodes are there going to be? Uh, only eight, unfortunately. Oh no, shit! Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. The, yeah. So another thing that they're they're talking about is the sort of uh, ongoing theme of. Uh, Dr. Venture being mistaken for the Blue Morpho, which, like, it seems like almost everybody falls for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's not a good thing. I mean, you know, we see here in this episode, right, it causes the death of Battleaxe and uh, Think Tank. And now that, you know, Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch thinks that he's the Blue Morpho, that's, you know, that's a huge problem. Yeah. We all know where this is headed, I think, and we're all worried. The, so, um, do you have anything? Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, do we have anything else we want to say about the, sort of the hate triangle between uh, Doctor Mrs. The Monarch and the Blue Morpho? No, I just think that that's the other big central point of, <coughs> of tension in this season. Yeah. Um, but you know, just to, to sort of um, you know keep going, finish off this theme of, of super business. Uh, I did want to talk about the sort of, you know, the Guild of Calamitous Intent as, like, bureaucratic villainy. Um, you know, the the complimentary pens, the hate line, um, you know, that Rusty spends, like, so much time this episode on the phone getting fucked with by uh, Watch and Ward. <laughs> um, you know, the, like, mismatching of uh, of clients, the battle axe is pissed off at, at Guild dudes. It, like, it really does seem like the guild is kind of losing the spirit of, you know, of this uh, this industry. I don't know what to call it exactly. It's a service. They act like a service. And it's weird because it feels like it's a service that Rusty, for example, wouldn't even want to buy. We know that his brother deliberately refused to engage, right? That was like a plot point. Um, yeah. 
But this doesn't seem like Doc is particularly amused or entertained by anything, and he's calling it to complain about the service, but it's like he can't cancel. Sort of like your cell phone. Yeah, you can't exactly. cancel. You're locked into a, you're locked into a contract. Um, so not much on Super Science this week. No. Uh, you know, we we do see the, the sort of fallout from the god gas um, in the media. It's kind of, I think, a little bit too early to tell whether, like, is Rusty flushing the company down the toilet completely or just it being a rough patch? Uh, we do see Dean taking classes, which I really like. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's important that that's a real plot line. Um, oh, one thing that I did really want to talk about just because, you know, I thought it was interesting how they're dealing with this, but um, sexuality and Brock and Warriana's relationship. What did you think about how they handled this? Oh, yeah. The the awkward morning after conversation. Uh, I I actually thought this. I thought I thought the whole thing was 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 pretty darn funny and was something that I. I it's the sort of thing where you're like, well, I'm her, I, I'm sure that people are watching the show have an understanding that like that's not how people are supposed to treat things in the real world, but, um, but it worked, it worked very well on the show. And I, I think that um, their relationship is a lot of fun and I think it's going to at least continue to the end of the season. I hope it goes on because it's really entertaining. Um, yeah. I, I, I love them both talking about how they can't, they like don't know how to talk to people the next day. That was. Yeah. I really like that. Um, the, the part I was a little bit more worried about was that like, Brock's kind of, um, you know, adventures in, like, ass play, basically <laughs> getting treated like a joke, at least initially. But I feel and then, like then they fixed it. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was a little bit worried that it was going to go in kind of a kink-shamey, you know, vaguely homophobic direction, but, like, it ended up with better to, you know, be comfortable with what you actually want instead of, sort of displaying for the world what you think they think you should want. And that is why the lasso of truth is such a powerful weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did like that the, the like, unsanctioned team-up as a way to, like, combine, you know, the relationship issue. Like, how do you deal with the whole, you know, hook-up, friends-with-benefits thing um, in a, in a superhero world? I was worried for a second when she referred to him as her man since they'd like hooked up once. But Oh, that, that it was gonna be sort of like an over over attachment kind of thing? Sorry, my headset went bad. Um can you hear me? Yeah. Sorry. I was worried when she said that because I was like, dude, you guys hooked up once but and they didn't make a thing out of it, so that's fine. Yeah, and it seemed like it was more that she had previous run ins with Think Tank. Yes, she's not entertained by Think Tank. Um, and certainly, you know, I think it's good that they were, like, enjoying themselves uh, as kind of, you know, action heroes. Like that's a Yes, part together. Of I thought that was identity. really great. That was, that, and that, that's a space that's easier for them to talk about than the relationship than, like, the sex one where he has to be drugged before he can make himself. Like, either he has to either be, like, lassoed of truth or drugged before he can make himself, like, face it, that that's what he wants he's interested in yeah. her or anything like that. Um, so let's talk about family and legacy. 
Yeah, I, 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 you, you know, I think that one of the weird pieces is we see, and we, I, this isn't really explored in the next, the next episode is like you have Hank working at Wide Whale's Italian restaurant still. Like I don't know how Wide Whale wouldn't know that because he's wearing a well, silly wearing a fake mustache. Yeah. Yeah, and like, what is? I, I think he's like trying to. Is he spying on behalf of his dad? Is it like? Is he just trying to get near Serena? Is this is this an ongoing job? <laughs> um, I I actually think it's an ongoing job because remember there was that stuff earlier in the season about how like Rusty was pissed off that Hank was spending too much All money. That money. Yeah. I I think it's like a you know a responsibility thing. It's like you know you need to get a job and show that you're responsible with money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Hank is like he's taking to it as the kind of uh, you know positive kid that he is. It's so funny though, with him with a mustache. Every time, I swear that just makes me laugh. I think it's oh, because yeah. it's so Sco- it's so Scooby Doo. Like you are a teenager with a glued on mustache. Like what? Well, who are you fooling? And and it's like um, it's Brock's fake mustache from. The um, all this new too. Is it oh, really? A, I don't think so. I thought Brock had a blonde mustache, like he would have oh, had. Oh, is he using a brown mustache? Yeah, it's black. It's like a black candle. It's like oh. a black. Um, okay, it's not well, the same scratch that then. But I really, but, really like, wish it, is, it was. That would have been really cool. Yeah, it is an ongoing theme with Hank: the wearing of the false mustache. Yes. He is he's into wearing fake mustaches and he's into wearing um I guess body armor suits that give you extra powers. These are both external um signifiers of strength and masculinity, so I see the appeal. Well, uh, although the the body uh strength suit was specifically coded as feminine and like one of the things that I like about Hank as yeah. well is that like you know, he he rejects the the heteronormative binary, you know, he sort of says you know, I can dress up too. I can be whatever I want to be. That's, yeah, no, that's true about his about his the, the awesome power suit that he was wearing in the last season for so long that he had to go into physical therapy to be able to walk again. <laughs> I love anyway, um, and then you had a point you wanted to talk about with regards to the the Blue Morphos family legacy. Oh yeah, so like one of the things that I've been sort of tracking this season is you know the monarch building kind of an emotional relationship with his with his departed parents because you know he, he had a hard time getting to the point of becoming the morpho and it, i thought it was really interesting that like this episode he actually said i love my daddy because his dad built a flying car and that you know flying cars are awesome and sort of he has sort of a uh, a common uh a common pastime with his dad. Um, although, you know, we'll, we'll sort of get to this next episode, but um, he kind of backslides a little bit. Uh, but, you know, clearly it's sort of an ongoing thing that, like, that's, I think, part of what's going to make the Blue Morpho thing so difficult for him and Dr. Mrs. the Monarch is for him it's about coming to terms with his family. I mean, that's why they've moved back into the house that looks like the house for Mad Men. Hmm. I, you know, I, the house, by the way, is just gorgeous. All the interiors this season have been particularly beautifully done. 
I should definitely say that the, the, the designers working on it um, are really outdoing themselves. One of them actually is on Tumblr, and people should be checking him out. I will tell you who he is in a moment. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So let's move on to the next episode. You ready? Or Oh, yeah, I am ready. Let's talk about it happening one night. So I am over the moon about this episode. This is really in the sweet spot of things that I'm interested in, um, which would be the Legion of Doom and Andy Warhol superstars. Um, I feel that my college education has been leading me up to this particular moment in time. (laughs) And I think that all of my educational choices are thereby justified by this experience. I would like to thank the professors of Sarah Lawrence College for putting up with all of my extended desires to talk about the significance of like, the choice of specific songs within the movie vinyl, etc. And anyway, the point is, love this episode so very much. But I, the first reference that I wanted to head off, actually, no, we should do the summary first before I talk about the references. Yeah. Okay, really quick. Before we can mm-hmm. jump into the good stuff, we have to, to do our due diligence. Um, so the cold open introduces us to Wes Warhammer's Doom Factory, an extended period uh, parody of Andy Warhol's Factory by way of the Legion of Doom from the Super Friends cartoons. Uh, the Doom Factory collectively is Rusty Venture's new level 10 arch, and they execute the strangest kind of arching to date by having Rusty become Wes's new muse, a.k.a. Superstar, as a cover for him, them robbing him blind. Unluckily for them, they're foiled by... The Blue Morpho! He's dealing with all kinds of discontent from on the home front. Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch is upset by the council refusal to recognize that Rusty is the blue morpho, so she thinks, or that he is a serious threat that she should face. And 21 is detailing with incipient PTSD after having killed the orangutan, um, and after non-consensually darting Dr. Mrs. Blue Morpho and Kano traveling <laughs> by morpho scooter to the Gowanus Canal to wreck the Doom Factory's hideout and cause them to lose status within the guild, allowing the monarch to overtake them as Dr. Venture's arch. After setting up what are supposedly dud grenades, or what he believes to be dud grenades, the Blue Morpho accidentally airlifted the Ventec Towers, airlifted them to the Ventec Towers, and accidentally blows the flying headquarters of the Doom Factory out of the sky, which convinces the Guild Council that now it's actually right to go and go after the Blue Morpho. Meanwhile, Hank sneaks out of Ventec Tower to have his first date with Serena with Billy, Pete, and Dean acting as his wingmen. After a semi-successful series of skits designed to promote Hank as a thwarter of muggers, rad bass guitarist, finder of lost babies <laughs> and cats, and teen pop sensation, the two arrived at a ninja-themed sushi place where uh, Dean's classmate, the Brown Widow, works. Despite the awkwardness of finding out that Serena and Brown Widow used to have a thing... Hank and Serena come to an understanding. The two conclude their date making out in the Hudson River before being there finished out by... Rocco and Brock, who, after an initial fight in Central Park and differing attitudes about the 1970s, establish a rough working relationship to hunt down their respective charges. After mistaking the ninja waiters for actual ninja, the two almost get into a fight with the Brown Widow and accidentally punch out Pete White before finding their charges. Uh, I so, think it was more I accidentally on purpose. I think it was more accidentally on purpose. No. Um, okay. uh, I love this episode. This is my favorite. This is like, this is just made for me. So, of course, I love it. Better than the Duran Duran episode? 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like the Duran Duran episode actually had more to say about how I view the significance of culture in the world. But I never thought that the Venture Brothers, I mean, I should have known that these guys, that Doc Hammer and Jackson Public, like being in New York City, avant-garde art people themselves, like would have had it in them to do this. But I never thought I would see something like this on television. Um, with the level of nerdery that they display for the specifics of the characters. Um, so, yeah, let's get into the references. So, first off, the episode is called It Happened One. It's based off the movie title, It Happened One Night, which is screwball comedy from the 30s. That's a really funny movie. definitely holds up. With Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert featuring a runaway heiress, much like Serena herself. So, it's it's you know, yep. this actually has a lot of parallels to the movie. Um, and the, the title, It Happening One Night, is referring to a happening, a happening being a 60s term for an art party of some kind. So this episode uh-huh. title even is the greatest title of all time. Um, especially okay, like so it's not a bizarro thing. I'm sorry? It's not a bizarro thing. No, no, it, it's a, it, it was a happening. Um, yeah. So the Doom Factory, as an extended Andy Warhol slash Super Friends slash Legion of Doom joke, is the greatest idea ever. Um, obviously, Wes Warhammer is Andy Warhol, which is a combination of Lex Luthor and Andy Warhol. In the old uh, Super Friends cartoon, his uniform had that big, villainous, arched, raised collar, which he has here, which is a great playoff of Andy Warhol's leather jacket that he wore for a good chunk of time. So it's a great visual play off the collar of like the evil Lex Luthor uniform and Eddie Warhol's leather jacket. Um, any meaning, and of course he's in charge of it all. And he, the whole whole mess of speech, I think they just nailed Warhol's dialogue down cold here. Um, like the, the line reads were just perfect, and I think I'm authorized to say that. Eddie <laughs> uh, <laughs> Meany, who is the toy man, and also Edie Sedgwick, um, she's amazing. Uh, like Warhol superstar, and um, I love that the touch that she when she sneaks in, she shrinks herself down to tiny size, and she shrieks, shrinks and gets into Ventec headquarters. When she syringes um, Vatred, it's like a hair. It looks like it's an actual like drug injection syringe, as opposed to like a dart. A, yeah, as opposed to a dart. I'm like it's a syringe because it's heroin because it's it's because this is a factory reference. I love it. Um, Serpentine, and this is one of the best ones I think they combined. Serpentine is a combination of Copperhead and Pope Ondine from Factory. Ondine is like the bitchy, cattiest person in the Warhol movies. Um, in all the movies where like people are basically performing as exaggerated versions of themselves. He like slaps people and like tells them off and is really catty. So having him be the person who just sits on the couch and says mean shit to people, perfect casting. I love that his superpower is that, like, he he destroys people just by saying really hurtful things about them that, like, get under their skin. I think that's completely accurate. You know, unfortunately, Undyne is, is no longer with us, but I feel like he would appreciate and approve of his portrayal here. Um, Ultraviolet, who is Star Sapphire, you know, the famous Green Lantern love interest slash villainess, uh, and also Ultraviolet, who is another one of the superstars. She was an, also an artist herself had awesome purple hair, uh, did a lot of different visual arts. Billy Mame, M-A-I-M, is Cheetah and also Billy Name. Billy Name was the photographer for, like, 
just most of the photos that you've seen of things happening at the factory that were not done by a news photographer were by Billy Name. He was like the official photographer, basically, for the factory. Um, so it's, I kind of wish that they could have had him be Black, the Black Mariah character because he like filmed a lot of stuff. He was always there with his cameras. But instead, they went with um, Black Mariah as black, who, uh, you know, Black Mariah, who's supposed to be Black Manta, Black Manta, the awesomest shaped head, super villain of all time, the Aquaman villain with the coolest shaped head, um, and is Mario Montez, people were suggesting here. Uh, a lot of people have been saying Mario Montez. I have to wonder, though, if it's Billy Littich, though, because he, like, filmed tons and tons of the stuff at the factory. Um, so... I don't know. But on the other hand, you know, and then it's like Black Manta, like, they, you know, in recent incarnations, he's African-American, whereas, like, Mario Montez is Puerto Rican. It's a little bit blurry, but I love that they use the head. A Black Mariah, by the way, a Black Mariah is an old film camera. So having the film camera name be the head of the villain who exists as a camera and just using Black Manta that way, I fucking love it. But I do kind of wish oh, it was Billy name, Billy name. That's interesting because I thought that uh, Black Mariah was the name. It was an old name for a police car. That's uh, yeah. Um, although that didn't really seem to that reference didn't really seem to come into it. So who is Gerard the Gorilla? Okay, this is the most important. This is the one where they really nailed it. Gerard the Gorilla is Gorilla Grodd, and the Warhol factory member he's equivalent to is Gerard Merlanga. Now, when I first saw that they'd cast Gerard Merlanga as, as a gorilla, I, I winced. I was like, oh, my God, here we have this art, this poet who, okay, so here's the thing with Gerard Merlanga, okay? He was a poetry student, like, and was introduced to Warhol by one of his, like, English professors, and he, you know, like, was one of the big people through the factory for a very long time was in lots, lots of the movies famously was the guy who at the various happenings would dance dressed all in leather with like bull whips. Um, and he was sort of played an Adonis figure in a lot of the movies. He was really like uh, someone who most people would consider to be sexy, like big, handsome, muscle, muscular, attractive guy. And he also was a poet and was published extensively. And like, generally speaking is like treated as a serious artist. And so I was like, oh, my God, they're, because he's like the, you know, like the, this, like the big guy, like they're saying he's the gorilla. And then I remembered, oh, right. The whole thing with Gorilla Grodd is that Gorilla Grodd is a gorilla and he's a super genius and everybody thinks he's a gorilla. Right. And, and that's perfect. That's just perfect. That's like completely perfect synchronicity between the, the real life person who they're basing it on and the supervillain who they're like casting him as. I think Gerard the Gorilla, that's perfect. And they got his hair down even. It was wonderful. And having showing him like doing all the silk screening in the bottom of the, like in the scene where people are working in there is great because like, you know, like he, he, lots of folks were doing silk screening work obviously oh, in the factory. Yeah, he was doing silk screens, but that was definitely one oh, of the things that no Gerard would have been doing. Was. Yeah, no, he definitely was doing a lot of silk screens also because he started as like essentially like a summer job and he just worked there for seven years. But um, but yeah, so that was perfect. They they really nailed it with them. Um, I feel like he probably would approve actually of the portrayal. Uh, and they even have a clip of him during the dance party of him dancing with the whips, and I just thought that was hilarious. So Frigid is Captain Cold and Bridget Berlin, and I think she would appreciate being characterized as being a cold ass bitch because she would appreciate that. Um. 
One of them that apparently the internet didn't figure out, but I figured out, was Shahimeth, um, who's obviously Giganta from the Legion of Doom, uh, and is I believe is Jane County. Um, Jane County used to be Wayne County. Jane County started a punk band, like a really early New York rock and roll punk band, and she sang super transgressive songs. You know, she was one of the like first really public out transgender people. Um, she's like still, you know, speaks and performs and all this other stuff. She's like a big punk rock figure and a big queer culture figure. And I think what they're going with her one is that like leopard print outfit she's wearing is something that Jane County would wear Two, the hair looks like her hair and three, the whole size changing versus like sex changing kind of thing. Right. And also Shahimeth uh, sounds like the name you'd have for a drag queen. So, well, that I'm convinced. And like Jane, Jane County, like definitely began as like a drag queen, but she like identifies as transsexual now. It's like it, it's it, it it works. The whole thing works really really well. I thought. So I'm I'm waiting for someone to tell me I'm wrong because it seems like I'm the only person who has put this out there for mm-hmm. that yet. But like I'm telling you, this is who it is. Um, oh, and I thought her costume kind of reminded me of Pizzazz from Gem and the Holograms because I guess I have to reference Gem and the Holograms in every episode of the podcast. <laughs> Crashenstein, uh, the exquisite corpse, is Solomon Grundy and also Joe D'Alessandro, um, who was also cast as a hunk in a lot of Warhol movies, but was not a poet. Um, uh, of the um, the exquisite corpse is a writing technique and also a drawing technique that the surrealists employed. Um, folks should go Google it; it's very cool. But that's why it's the exquisite corpse. It's it's. Um, Oh, it's just a real ah. like writing party game, or you could also use it to inspire your own work. Um, and also, he was in the Frank. Was was he cast as shit? I don't remember this. I think he yeah, was he was Frank cast as Frankenstein. Yeah, he was and also Frankenstein. as trash. And trash, yeah. So it works, and it, it looks and and the and the um the what's the the, the the depiction is like pretty damn nailed it too. Um. Hard Candy, well, that's Candy Darling, but we weren't sure which supervillain. I was thinking maybe Bizarro because she has a shield on her chest and she's got I guess that's, skin. That's the closest. I mean, I, I looked all over and, like, really looked at the character, but, like, she doesn't really do a lot in the episode. No. So I was just she's like, a cool I, outfit. I don't. I like her outfit. Yeah, I just don't have anything to hang it on. So, guys, if you think you know who she is, let us know. I mean, we know she's Candy Darling, but if you think you know which supervillain she is, let us know. Um, the delivery of the Doom Box, which is a Brillo pad box, um, one of the really important art pieces that Warhol did was um, he, like, screen-printed Brillo boxes as sculptures. Um, and this one says Doom as opposed to Brillo, and it's the whole Brillo art and how that delivered. I love that touch. I also couldn't help but thinking about the first or Dune and that whole marketing Hello? technique. Did you? Can you hear me? Yeah, sorry, you just dropped out a couple words. Oh, I also made me think about Frisky Frisky Dingo, the cartoon. Um, ah. with, they had the whole um, marketing promotion around Welcome to Your Doom. Ah. Uh, I'm sure that the guys know for the Frisky Dingo cartoon because it was also an adult swim. Um but yeah, like the whole idea of creating this marketed product as a supervillain 
delivery box, like welcome to the neighborhood, almost a greeting is like super funny to me. And the video, which they have them watching, this is just another brilliant one. Um, Empire was one of the first really significant Warhol films. Uh, it's an eight hour continuous slow motion shot, or at least cut to be, to resemble being continuous slow motion shot of um, the Empire State Building. And this, they're just doing a long shot of the Ventec headquarters, which they've recast as the Empire State Building. And I loved, um, you know, just having Dean weigh in with his analysis of, like, why he thinks it's interesting art. I would say <laughs> that the end of um, Empire does not end with a menacing brief montage of demonic heads promising doom coming your way. It, it ends with, like, the little end of the film real thing, uh, and it goes dark for a long time. You have, I think, at least a couple hours of it just being dark outside because it's night. <laughs> it's a continuous shot. Um, and I actually have to say, during the party scenes, they I feel like they did a great job of depicting the party scenes. Um, the music that they did in the background is a pastiche of the Velvet Underground, and it's really hard, I think, to do a pastiche of the Velvet Underground. And they did it. Um, the first song that you hear is definitely supposed to be All Tomorrow's Parties. The second song that you kind of hear in the background sort of changes between being like heroin and sometimes it sounds like white light, white heat. It kind of keeps changing. But the fact that they're able to make sort of background music that sounds like Velvet Underground because they couldn't afford the original, fantastic. Um, spray painting the Ventec watch gold. That, you know, she early um, Edie Sedgwick steals the watch and then at the end of the episode, when once he realizes he's being arched to return, you know, um, uh, Warhol returns it to to him and says, uh, Eni gave this to me and said that I could use it to talk to God, but I don't have anything to say to him. So I'm giving it to you and you could talk to him. And Adventure is like, dude, this is my watch. And you just spray painted it gold. Well, I was pretty sure that that was a reference to an actual Warhol quote. It's not, actually. It's a quote from the Oliver Stone's movie about the doors. In it, um, Andy Warhol says, somebody gave me, like, give shows, like, a gold telephone to the actor playing uh, Jim Morrison and says, somebody gave me this telephone. I think it was Edie. She said I could talk to God with it, but I don't have anything to say. So here. So, like, it's actually a reference to the Oliver Stone movie. Um, right. But it sounded like Andy, so, hey. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they really like put up the, you know, the, the silver paint, the mylar pillows, that's all stuff that was what the factory looked like in the earliest, in, in the early incarnation of the factory. Um, when we have Black Mariah shooting that long extended video of Doc, of Dr. Venture, <coughs> um, one of Warhol's ongoing film projects were called screen tests. If he thought you were an interesting person, he would just have you sit in front of the camera and essentially just have you be yourself in front of the camera. I'm making air quotes. Um, and would ask people to do little things, to sit there, smile, sometimes talk, sometimes not talk. And those were his screen tests. So he's basically shooting an extended screen test of Rusty, and then that's getting broadcast live throughout the party, which is how those films would have been shown a lot of the time. If you want to see them now, like yeah, you can go and look at them on YouTube, but that's not the context that any of this art was created for. This art was created to be projected on the walls at parties. So hmm. that's 
how you're supposed to go and experience it. Well, there you have an extensive and extensive uh, extended um, analysis of uh, Andy Warhol. Yeah, I think it is our like value added is that we can do this stuff. Um, so some stuff that I thought was interesting, uh, the see something, slay something posters that the Guild of Calamitous Intent put out is absolutely, this is a New York City uh, PSA uh, after 9-11, uh, which is if you see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I love the, the way that the Guild does it, but it's also, like, I think a great statement on this sort of, like, bureaucratic security theater, you know, that the Guild's response to, you know, someone going around killing their members is to put up, you know, awareness posters, whereas... You know, New York City after 9/11, like the whole thing was, you know, tell people about um, about backpacks. And you know, I really remember in um, like kind of the result of this was that you know I remember in 2002 I was uh, coming back to to college, um, you know, from like uh, I think it was like a spring break or something, and like there someone had left a backpack on the on the number three train. And as we were pulling into Times Square, someone shouts bomb. And it was the most scary crowd stampede I'd ever been in. Um, and so, you know, I like that they're taking the piss out of this kind of ongoing security theater thing that, you know, New York has been sort of nonstop with ever since. Hello? You dropped out. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, where did I drop out? That New York has been obsessed with this ever since, and then you were going to say 9-11, and then I heard Yeah, nothing. ever since 9-11. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the ongoing visual joke, uh, my favorite visual joke from this episode, is Hank dresses Michael Jackson from bad. Yeah. Which I loved both that that, like, that was what he went to as his idea of, like, how to be a cool guy. But also that when Serena, like, just straight up asks him, is that the bad outfit? And he says, no, this is the good outfit. Yeah, that joke was wonderful. That is so Hank. That is, like, you know, enthusiastic but just kind of dumb. Uh, So you had something about uh, the song that he was singing? Oh, yeah, he was totally singing, like, a weird version of, like, Maria from West Side Story. Don't you think it sounded vaguely like that? Oh, Serena. Serena, I just met a girl. Yeah. Okay. You know, and it's New York appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I love the fact that, like, Hank's whole, whole, you know, he's he's trying to be a rock star as a bass player without a a lead guitarist, which is kind of uh, hilarious. So another, like, weird um, little pop culture reference that I thought was kind of interesting is that Brock and Rocco – turn out to be fans of Wolfgang Peterson's Troy with Brad Pitt, which uh, I remember seeing. It was not a very good movie. Um, uh, I don't think it was a very successful movie either. I'm going to check it out, but hold on just a second. Uh, Ooh. Yeah, okay, so uh, Lifetime... Well, okay, it 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 made its money back overseas, but uh, domestically <laughs> I'm sure it, it, did. it didn't make back it. 
domestically it so the movie cost 175 million and uh only made 133 million in the US but it made 364 million dollars overseas so it i guess turned a profit although it's always hard to tell with hollywood uh but it is kind of interesting that they're both into this movie that was like not really a huge success hmm Maybe that's a metaphor for themselves and their own action star lives. Yes. So we have Dean as a movie beatnik, like straight out of Hollywood cinema imaginations slash straight out of X-Men's 1960s comics, in fact. Um, Yeah. Like playing bongos, like that's just not, it's like a cartoon that I think would not, an actual beatnik of actual time would not have said, oh, look, that's me. It was very much a Hollywood creation. And hilarious. Um, and then Mr. White basically is every 90s drug pusher because yeah. people just don't usually run up to you and, like, do that in that context and then drop their knife and run away when you dance at them. Well, also, how many people wear a backwards baseball cap and a hoodie and an overcoat? Like, it was just... Yeah, you would think the hood, you would have the hat facing forward to, like, cover your face maybe. Well, it just seems like overkill. Um so uh, one thing that I loved, uh, you know, they don't usually do video game stuff on the Venture Brothers that much, but I love that uh, Dr. Venture's, uh, you know, hardcore research was playing Team Fortress 2 with Vatred. Um, yeah, and he's playing that, that's the, goofing off. Yeah, and he's playing the pyro um, against Vatred playing the soldier. Now, Vatred as the soldier absolutely fits. Because uh, they're they're almost the same character, like beat for beat. They're these kind hmm. of blowhard wannabe soldiers. Um, and I thought it was hilarious that, like, of course, Rusty is team killing because, like, that's absolutely what he would do. That's uh, so, cool. Yeah, and then we get the blue Morpho sequence with the Morpho scooters. Yeah, those are fun. I like them. They kind of <laughs> ran that. off. He didn't really know how to pilot them. Um, oh, yeah. They that's were exciting. Because that's the thing with, like, you know, all of these modes of transportation that we think are awesome, like jet packs and, and you know, aqua bikes and all this sort of stuff, they're hard as hell to use. They just, you know, they're not super convenient means of, of transportation, uh, especially when you're going in the Gowanus Canal. Now, tell us about the Gowanus Canal. So the Gowanus Canal is a canal within Brooklyn, Um it has historically been very, very polluted and continues to be uh, due to industrial waste as well as like oil spills and things of that nature, which you are not are not the fault of the people of Brooklyn. We have been poisoned by outside sources. And the Gowanus Canal, um, very sadly, a number of years back, there was a, a, a young whale that swam off of it and uh, died. Um, and of course, there's dead dolphins in the show. And as they don't quite spell this out in the show. They're like, you don't want to know the water. What else the water has? Well, I'll tell you guys. The water has gonorrhea. Now, I don't think it's like antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea, but it's gonorrhea. There is gonorrhea in the water. So do not go into the water of the Gowanus Canal. However, I can refer you to a number of really cute restaurants and bars nearby, as well as a really good art space. Because Can I ask a question? How does gonorrhea get into the water? I think maybe a gigantic troll has sex with it. Okay. Um, so 
this was this uh, next thing is my find, and I'm actually I'm really thrilled about it. So the Ninja Sushi restaurant that they go to is actually a real restaurant in New York. Uh, it's called Ninja New York. Uh, if you go to ninjanewyork.com, you can find their kind of amazing animated uh, website and menu. Um, and it's in Tribeca, and it's pretty close to the Hudson, so they're being very uh, geographically appropriate. Also, I really feel like the whole look of that place is one. Obviously, we should all go to because that place is awesome. It totally looks like the Too Young for Love video from Motley Crue's first album, but I doubt that was on purpose. Right. Uh, oh, and also we uh, we get Brick Frog at the Doom Factory party. We get some recurring villains, uh, mm-hmm. including Brick Frog, uh, who's making out with a villainess that I don't recognize. Um, Nor do I. And I thought maybe she was a factory Denzian, but I couldn't quite place her. Cool outfit, though. Yeah, and Murder Bear, who is just a wonderful silent <laughs> joke. Because that's all there is. It's just he's he's a guy in a bear costume that's got this ominous blood stain, and he's got a knife, and he just breathes <laughs> heavily. And he's terrifying. I, I just, you know, nightmare fuel. Yeah, that is, that is pretty scary. Uh, <sighs> so, oh. Uh, we should talk about the Central Park carriage horses. Yeah. This has become the biggest political issue in New York City. I can't even speak completely about that, but um, but there's a big controversy over whether or not the carriage horses should be continuing to do the rides that they do uh, in Central Park or whether they should be ended and replaced by, I believe, uh, rickshaws is the alternative that people are proposing. But yeah, the whole like taking a handsome cab through Central Park is a classic New York City recreational thing. And it's also a, an incredibly expensive tourist trap. Yes. I yeah, don't think like, I've ever been in one, but the sad truth is I have to say I don't think I've ever been in one. Because who knows? I've certainly, I've certainly smelled them. Like, yeah, really I have certainly can't... smelled them too. Yeah, you cannot walk along like Central Park South and just not smell enormous amounts of horse shit. Um, and horses. <laughs> uh, but, like, anyway. but like I'm telling you right now, the Daily New York Daily News, the paper, is like ready to die on the hill of saving the carriage horses. Like not to save the horses. I mean to keep the horse carriage industry going. Like right. the hill Whereas, that the Daily News wants to die on is that we need to have handsome cabs in Central Park. That's like the most important issue in the world to them. Right, whereas, have, like, the I New York animal why. rights community <laughs> it's like, it's like, is, like, home. you know, end them now. Yeah. They they always send, like, mailers and stuff with just these horrible images of dead horses. Yeah, it's really upsetting. I mean, because it's upsetting, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, in this episode, 21 and Bracco talk about this book called Blood on My Hands, Grief in My Heart. I wasn't sure whether this was a book exists in the world or whether it's a book that Vatred maybe wrote in Venture Brothers universe. Do you huh. have anything on this? No, I don't. Um, I didn't go. I didn't really go and do a search around that um, to see if it was real. But I could ask the veterans. I know if they've heard about mm-hmm. that. Uh, okay, so um, let's let's go through some likes and dislikes. Okay. Oh, but just really quick, but like the whole the whole question though, I mean, about like people like not really addressing the fact that they've killed people and how they're traumatized by it is. And then I, I'm sorry, what were you saying? 
yeah, no, absolutely. It's a, a major ongoing theme in the show uh, pretty much since, you know, early seasons. Um, so Hank and Serena play If I Were King and discuss some of their likes and dislikes. So I thought we'd do sort of a canvas of opinion. Yellow candy, pro or it's negative? Not, it's not as bad as the uh, some of the other flavors, but I don't really like artificial candy, period. I mean, I've always been very down on, like, um, anything grape-flavored. Oh, that's the I'm worst. Like, yeah, um, and I always think that, like, greens and reds are usually the best. Uh, socks and sandals. Oh, they do suck. But you know what I had to wear on my flight back from Hawaii today? I'm, I, oh, God, you lucky person. Socks and sandals, I'm guessing. I had to. I had to. But don't tell anybody. I mean, I just told the whole internet. But, like, I had to wear sandals in Hawaii, and then it's freezing on the airplane. But it's true. It should be <laughs> illegal. Like, don't do it, people. So. Yeah. Um, I, I do also – I'll join you in the shameful admission corner. Uh, I had a, a brief sandals phase when I was in high school, and, yeah, they just were not for me. Um, socks or not socks. It's just no good. Um, so, speaking of, of likes and dislikes, which is worse, 70s mullets or Axe body spray? I support 70s mullets, so obviously they are superior to Axe body spray. Yeah, um, Axe body spray, double plus on good. Um, totally out of nowhere, but I've noticed that Axe is doing, like, a series of commercials that are all about, like, you know, celebrating you know, the diversity and, like, you know, you're hip and sexy no matter what your thing is. And I was like, really? That's the direction you're going to go? Like, the <laughs> the product most That's the direction is, they like, need to go, I think. That's smart of them because that's, like, what people – that's, like, the zeitgeist. So I think it's smart of them. I don't know if it'll work. Yeah, I just don't think it'll work because, like, actually, the opposite of their brand. is the scent yeah. of the douchebag, you know. It is the scent of the douchebag. It is. <laughs> But you know uh, so what? Like, 70s you, mullets are back, so anything can happen. Okay. Speaking of 70s, what did you think of his uh, his medal? So, yeah, so Brock's in his car, and in the past when they've had pastiche of Zeppelin, it's it, like, was half decent, but, like, not that good. Like, I could kind of tell what they were going for. It was really bass-heavy in a way that Zeppelin isn't. Um, but in the past, I could kind of tell they were trying to make it sound like Zeppelin, but it kind of ended up being a little bit more Sabbathy. However, in this last episode, it it was clearly all done electronically. Like, you know, the opening music for our podcast, for example, was me saying to my brother, like, I want opening music, make it sound like it's like, you know, Iron Maiden, but I know you can only do this on your synthesizer, so go. That's what our theme music is for the podcast. This sounds like, again, like they couldn't afford to pay a band, so they had a synthesizer go and make the instrument sounds and it sounds really compressed and tinny which is okay because that's a car radio but it's also very 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 bass heavy and rapid it does not sound like 70s metal the music in the background in that car is not correct it sounded like a pastiche maybe of contemporary metal but not 70s mm. metal which is funny because um, the Velvet Underground thing which I think is very hard to pastiche they totally nailed yeah absolutely um so, yeah, so when uh, Hank and Serena are having their date, um, he gives his version of the Bull Durham monologue, um, which is, like, always listed as, like, one of the best speeches ever um, <laughs> on in film. I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, and what's kind of nice is that I think they've taken 
kind of the annoying stuff out of it. Like the the part of the speech that I don't like is like he, it starts with, well, I believe in the soul, the cock, the pussy, the small of a woman's back. That the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent, overrated crap, and like it goes on like that. Oh. And that's just kind of like, eh. Um, but it, you know, the whole thing about the the kisses that last three days, but stopping for bathroom breaks is like, that's to me that's Hank kind of reclaiming that speech for, you know, non adorableness and good things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! Don't do Susan Sontag, man. Okay. I have yeah, to well, fight about know, that. Durham. Kevin Costner was playing, you know, a kind of a man's man baseball player. So, oh, one detail I absolutely loved is uh, when, uh, you know, at the end of the night, um, Pete White gets punched out. Uh, Billy White comes up dressed as Eddie Murphy from Changing Places, the the whole mm-hmm. Vietnam veteran on the on the pushboard um, thing which was just a, a wonderful uh, visual motif. <laughs> I really cracked up at that. And that's a very New York movie for folks should definitely see if they haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely great. Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy at their absolute height of their power. And it's also like a really great populist, anti-capitalist movie, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um. um See all of our sirens. That's this is the proof for our listeners of how New York oh. we are. Sorry about that. Uh, I'm. <laughs> I live right next to a major uh, cross uh, uh, crosstown street, so we often get Don't fire apologize. trucks and ambulances. This is our this is our street cred <laughs> as like New York experts. Is the background That's sirens? True. And, That's true. And for me, later on, you'll be hearing really loud music coming from the streets as the weather gets yeah. warmer here. So deal with it, people. Um, Oh, yes. Oh, and at the very end, there's, like, this whole sequence of 21 and um, the monarch shouting, dude, 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 at each other. What the fuck is that from? Is it, dude, where's my car? Is it? No, it can't be that. Um, What could it be? Hold on. Because um, that's, oh, Big Lebowski. I'm just looking through Google right now. Maybe. Um, and the thing that they're giving me is either basketball or um, the Big Lebowski. I'm going to go with the Big Lebowski because I like it better than basketball. Anyway, themes. Yes. Uh, so we have a lot of stuff on uh, super business this episode. Um, you know, with the ongoing, like, seriously, at this point, you know, the the Blue Morpho has done some real damage to the Guild of Calamus intent. So it's, you know, they're, they're uh, really rattled by this villain killer, which I was wondering whether that was a reference to the whole thrill killer thing from the 80s. Maybe. Yeah. Um, oh, one thing I absolutely loved is that when uh, 21 and the Monarch are talking about the Doom Factory, uh, 21 kind of does this, like, riff on not being down with pomo villainy. Mm-hmm. 
Um, which I was wondering, like, I think that's kind of a meta, like, slapback at, like, people who critiqued Venture Brothers for being too meta. Well, like, the whole show is very completely postmodernist, so yeah. they're putting the words of their opponents, I guess, in the mouth of a well-liked character. It's sort of a weird choice that way. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, when we actually look at, like, how, how does postmodern arching work? You know. Um, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting question. Like, what is his problem with it? I assumed it's because he thought it's just you know it's like people not taking it seriously. It's people treating it as a style. But you know what? They're not taking it seriously either. Like, n- none of them are actually doing this to like gain real money or real power. Perhaps Wide Whale has, but for as far as you know, the Doom Factory or the Monarch's crew, like, it's like we've been saying, it's arch for arch's sake, so. Yeah. I think maybe it's like a different kind of art thing because, you know, 21 has always been shown as, like, a fanboy. That's his Mm -hmm. thing. It's like he loves the culture of being a villain. He's into pop culture in general, and, like, his love for the Blue Morpho is, like, a nostalgic, it's a retro thing. Yeah. Whereas, the the Doom Patrol is a little bit more kind of intellectualized, um, you know, and it's a different period of nostalgia. It's like, you know, kids who were, you know, people who are nostalgic for the Super Friends, you know, probably were too young at the time to be nostalgic for, the, for you know, Andy Warhol and probably encountered that stuff later in life. So maybe it's a generational thing. But one thing I did think that was really interesting mm-hmm. is that, you know, when you see uh, uh, Wes Warhammer's arching in, in practice, like, it actually works a lot better. Yes, it absolutely did. They they stole stuff from Doc Venture. That's, like, the only actual thing that someone's accomplished, really. Yeah. Because and, and maybe a hole in a living stuff. room has not been, uh, has not been yeah, a, a problem for a venture. And and even more so, like they they actually get under his skin. Like Rusty Venture is used to mayhem. He's used to shit blowing up and being on fire and people trying to kill him. Like that that does not get a rise out of him. But like appealing to his ego and then dumping him, like he was genuinely hurt by that in a way that he has not really responded to arching in a long time. Yeah, I think that's true. It, um. And, you know, it's also accurate, like, Warhol would move on from one star to another when he'd get bored with them, whether they were, you know, getting too into whatever drugs he wasn't and were getting unfun, not fun to be with anymore, or they were getting too much ego, or, you know, like, you definitely would go through people. So I felt like that was, you know, reflexive and reflecting that. Yeah. Um, And, you know, continuing on with super business, I mean... It's interesting, like, the monarch is both enjoying being a super vigilante more than he, you know, has enjoyed being a super villain in a long time. A long time, yeah. And he's also kind of better at it. Like, obviously, in an accidental way, you know, he has mowed down, you know, at this point a good or, you know, been coincidentally responsible for, you know, at this point, you know, a good dozen or so 
of the most powerful people in the Guild of Calamitous Intent. And, you know, that's a lot more than he ever did as Dr. Venture's Arch. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know. I'm, not, I'm with you on that. You know, meanwhile, I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting this episode is uh, Dr. and Mrs. the Monarch um, kind of hitting this glass ceiling in the guild, you know, which has been this ongoing yeah. thing that, you know, she doesn't really get respect from the rest of the No, they are not team. taking her seriously at all. She's the only competent person, basically, and they haven't. Uh, and, you know, I, I hope they, they keep going with that because I honestly really want to see her just beat the shit out of the phantom, uh, phantom limb, rather. Uh, so just to round off this section, um, I mean, you know, I thought it was interesting. Brock thinks that power suits are for pussies, um, which, you know, I mean, that's very much been kind of his ethos. Is for the whole like time, the purity, yeah. Is like the purity of hand-to-hand combat. Like he doesn't, his gun is unloaded, not because he has PTSD, but because like if it were up to him, he wouldn't wear a gun because he, he likes the knife. Mm-hmm. You know, that's. You think she shouldn't need the gun? Yeah, OSI requires him to wear it. That's been, like, an ongoing point. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, and Rocco seems to be an ex-military dude who is kind of keyed into this whole uh, problem of PTSD and and superheroism and villainy. Yeah, he's definitely somebody who's, like, of this time rather than of a past time. Yeah, definitely the diff, like there was a whole generational thing with him and, and Brock. Mm-hmm. Um that was interesting. Uh so moving on to sexuality. Um you know, we've known for a long time that the the monarchs are into role playing. Yeah. Uh, I was a little bit uh surprised that the role playing was um kind of generic farm girl stuff like and initially I thought it was going to be this like uh, Dukes of Hazard thing that they were doing, <laughs> like very specific, rather yeah, than very generic. That the, the wig was the wrong color for that. Um, uh, and I also like in a previous season, one of my favorite goofs that they ever did was the whole thing of the monarch as Cal Drogo, um, and uh, <laughs> Doctor Mrs. the Monarch mis- misunderstanding his cultural references, showing up as Rocky Balboa. Thinking that he was Ivan Drago, um, but yeah, it, it uh, their their role playing uh, didn't work out due to non consensual darting, which you know not cool, dude. The fact that he did that, well, one, I love the Venture Brothers cartoon because we have to have conversations around consensual darting and non consensual darting and <laughs> dart abuse, as it were, in the case of the sea the sea pirate and his addiction to darting. Um, but yeah, like the second that he, that, that he darted her, like that's, that is unforgivable. That is a real violation of somebody. And it doesn't matter that he like darted himself to make it look or fake darted himself to make, to cover up for it later. Like that's a huge betrayal that that's going to somehow come out and that's going to kick him in his ass. And it should. Oh, absolutely. I mean, especially because like she reacted it. You know, like, when she wakes up, like, she's really freaked out that the Blue Morpho was in their home. You know, yeah. there's a real issue of, like, 
you know, being safe in your own house. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a real violation. You know, yeah, kind of fucked up. Um, and then the other thing on, I wanted to just talk yeah. about relationship-wise is like, is that I I really 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 hope that everything goes good with Serena and with you know with with Hank like they're kids so obviously no romance is going to be a long term thing but I don't like her name Serena sounds like a siren you know she's the daughter of a villain I I like the way the show is constructing her like when you think you've got her figured out she's actually far more complex and interesting and compassionate. Like she's a really great character, and I'm really hoping she's not treated as a siren, so to speak. Uh, yeah, I, I I see what your what your worry is, but you know, I actually thought that they kind of navigated the hookup culture thing rather nicely. That you know, the, that Hank is not into the whole kind of Romeo and Juliet, you know, star-crossed lover thing. You know, I mean, his bit where he said like, I'm I. You know, I don't want to be with you if you're only with Just me because making your you dad want to piss pick. off your Yeah. Yeah. And, like, you know, they really seem to have, like, a genuine meeting of the minds where they were like, this is what we're into. Oh, and also that, you know, he's not into getting her drunk to sleep with her, which is, like, that's clearly a, kind of a problematic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, like, she clearly had uh, some sort of complicated relationship with the brown widow i really hope that he wasn't the guy trying to get her drunk no i uh, I don't know i mean this whole thing is that he's an old he he looks old in the old school marvel comics you had all of these people i mean in like the 60s who looked like they're grown-ups but they're written as teenagers you know like all they, they they just are drawn as adults and that's sort of like a joke almost to me around how the silver age comics are portrayed Right, and it's it's also this whole sort of thing about like status quo stasis that you know he's it looks like he's been a college student for twenty years, mm-hmm. you know because you know how how for how many decades has Peter Parker been in high school, for example? Although sometimes he's been a high school teacher or a you know professional photographer, etc. But like, and all of these things at the same time. Yeah, you know uh, that is something that comic books have a, a way of sort of getting into this, like, rut of kind of personal growth. Um, so, yeah, you know, I'm I'm hopeful. It looks like Hank and Serena kind of are doing it right and communicating well together, which is, you know, obviously something lacking in the Monarchs. Yes. Um, so, failure. Uh, you know, our, our favorite theme Um I mean, definitely Brock's been way off his game this season. Yeah, he, you know, like has not successfully beat people up on him by himself for a little while. I don't think that he's on a downward arc or anything. I think this is going to end with him doing better in the end, though. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's like, um, I mean, I, I hate to use the pun, but if he's getting rusty. It's just that, you know, he spent, like, what, two seasons with the OSI and with the Sphinx? Uh, He hasn't been their bodyguard for a long time. That's true. So I'm I'm wondering if he's just not used to the, you know, the new old status quo, as it were. 
Um, but, yeah, I mean, the other thing in terms of failure is just that, you know, man, Rusty gets kind of put through an emotional ringer this episode. Yeah, he does, and I have no problem with that. I mean, like, who do I care about? I care about the boys, I, I, and I care about Brock. Um, and I'm and I'm worried about the monarch and Mrs. Doctor Mrs. the monarch, but Doc, like, I, 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 my caring about Doc has varied from various seasons to various seasons. I actually cared about him a lot in season one, probably because mm-hmm. he was posited as the um, main character, so it was hard for me not to. But yeah, they, you know, it's interesting. They they kind of they've resolved a lot of his issues. You know, so in in some ways he kind of works better as kind of um, almost like the the background, like the the common location that all of these characters have to deal with. But, you know, he still has like these ongoing problems with, you know, wanting attention and validation. And so, like, you know, in in a lot of ways, the Doom Factory was kind of his perfect arch. Yeah, that's totally true. And they're also cool kids who didn't invite him and then invited him, and suddenly he was embraced. Yeah, and then they took his stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, there's sort of an ongoing open question about, like, how much of his super science stuff has he lost now? Probably none of it worked very well. So maybe this is how he goes back to the drawing board and makes things that work. Well, hopefully. Um and then, you know, finally, uh, man, it's getting pretty late, but uh, the last sort of item on the agenda is just that I really want to know where does Rusty know the blue morpho from? Because he clearly recognizes him from before the monarch was ever acting as the blue morpho. He recognizes him from when his dad was him, you know? Yeah, but, like, what is that context? What does that have to do with the you know, the death of the Blue Morpho slash the Monarch's parents. I mean, we still don't know, like, what the whole deal is between the Monarch and Rusty that set them off on this course of arching. So all questions for the future. Yeah. I'm really happy with the season so far, just reiterating that. Um, You know, there's real stakes and so the stakes are emotional primarily, and the the use of New York City as a as a background has been really well deserved. And lots of shows don't really know how to do it right, but these are these are writers who are New Yorkers, so they totally do. Agreed. Uh, well, I think that uh, I think that is it. Yeah. So, so Alana, um, where can we find you? I am at Graphic Policy, which is graphicpolicy.com. I'm on Twitter, E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn, spelled like the name of the greatest city in America. Um, I'm also Ilana Brooklyn without a space on Tumblr. And uh, Graphic Policy Radio will be back on Monday. We'll be talking about comics as per usual and we are uh, long overdue for just a regular episode talking about comics. So I think that's what we're going to be doing on Monday. And then Stephen and I will be back again on Wednesday to talk about the Venture Brothers. And Stephen, where can we find you? 
Um, so I write at uh, raceforthearionthrone.wordpress.com. Uh, I also write a column for graphic policy, uh, people's history of the Marvel Universe, that, uh, uh, you know, I promise I will finish that column uh, as soon as possible tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can also find me at Stephen Atwell uh, on Twitter and uh, raceforthearionthrone.tumblr.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. And uh, if you are listening to the show, please make sure to tell your friends. We we are on iTunes um, under Graphic Policy Radio. We are um, also on Stitcher and SoundCloud. You can find us there also under Graphic Policy Radio and on iTunes, which I think I already said, and Blog Talk Radio. So that's it, guys. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Keep it geeky. Bye.